Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of our passage for the sermon this morning. I am going to turn to Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, to the end of the book of Matthew. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would give us understanding of your word by your spirit. Father, we thank you for the the work of your spirit through the ages in your church, as this passage makes clear to us. We thank you that the time of the Reformation brought your word back as the authority in your church after those there had been others who had turned away from it. Father, we thank you for the treasure that you've given to us in your word. We thank you that you have commanded us what to believe about yourself what to believe about ourselves. And Father, what we must do to be saved. And we thank you that you have provided a Savior for us in your Son, Jesus. And Father, I pray that we would study your Scripture so that we might know more about our Savior, Jesus. That we might walk in a manner worthy of him and glorify your name. Father, we pray that you would continue your work in your church. That you would purify her. That you would give her a, an undivided devotion to your, to your holy word. And that that would bear fruit in this world and in this, this wicked and perverse generation. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So, you've no doubt been aware of the fact for some time that this weekend is the 500th anniversary of uh, a little sort of uncontroversial deed by Martin Luther that became controversial. Honestly, it was a very uncontroversial, common sort of thing that he did. But what it led to was was the reformation of the church. 
And so we, we think back on that, but 500 years, think of it. I mean, if you split that time in half, you know, it, it falls on the nearer half that we became a nation. Um, and so this is, this is remarkable to think about. But 500 years ago when, when Luther nailed those 95 theses to, uh, to that door in Wittenberg... And, and what a wonderful thing. Uh, what I want to focus on today is, is what that meant for the church and um, really what the church is supposed to be. Um, what are the marks of the church? It's so easy for us to get confused about such things because the church is in need of reformation in all ages. And I think it's particularly in need of reformation today. In similar ways as it, it was in need of Reformation back 500 years ago. And, you know, it's easy for us to think of the church as, um, as a, you know, a nonprofit organization that we can get tax deductions for when we contribute our tithes. That's how some people think of the church today. Um, some people think it's just a, a, the church is a convenient way for people to pull, pull off certain programs, pull off bigger works that we couldn't do uh, separately, and so we do it together. We, we combine our energies, and, and uh, you know, like the, the government, we, we can pull off things that we normally couldn't. But we know that the church has a purpose way beyond nonprofit status. We know that the church has a purpose in this world way beyond those things. Um, what should the church primarily be doing? What should she be all about? How can we tell if our church is fulfilling God's purpose for her? How can we, how can we know those things? And so that's one of the questions that occupied the reformers uh, through the 16th century. What is the church? What is the purpose of the church? And they framed that question. They asked, what are the marks of the church? How, you know, just like we want to know when we buy gold, whether it's genuine, you know, and there's certain ways you can test that. We want to know what marks the church as the true church. Now, note, I'm not going to answer this morning the question, what makes for a good church? Okay, that's not, that's not the question I'm asking. The question is, what makes for a true church? What, what has to be in the church in order to make it a church, uh, you know, as opposed to not being a church? Whether it's a good or bad church, a bad church can even have the marks of the church, right, but needs reformation. And a good church may be very subjective, what we're talking about. But I'm fundamentally talking about what makes a church true or apostate. Uh, since the time of the Reformation, Scripture has been understood to teach. And this has been, you can find this in Calvin, you can find this in, in, uh, in the Confessions. That there are three marks of the true church. So in a nutshell, those three things are preaching, sacraments, and discipline. Those are the three marks of the church. If, if any of those are lacking, then you are not in a church. Now, to elaborate, 
That, that's a nut, nutshell, so preaching sacraments discipline. But we, we have to expand each of those um, because just having those three things doesn't guarantee anything. Uh, you can have unbiblical preaching, you can have improper sacraments, and you can have unhelpful and, and terrible discipline. Um, so the presence guarantees nothing. What a church must have to be a true church are the following. The true preaching of the word of God. The right administration of the sacraments of Christ Jesus. And ecclesiastical discipline uprightly administered. Okay, so that helps bring it into a little bit of focus. That, that it's not just the presence of those three things, but it's, it's the quality of those three things that's important. Now, why was this question necessary to answer during the time of the Reformation? Because of Roman Catholic distortions. Because the church at that point had degenerated, particularly in those areas. The Roman Catholic Church thought that what, what constituted a true church was simply apostolic succession. If you had a succession uh, that you could trace back to uh, Peter, then you were the true church. And the reformers said, no, that is not the answer to what constitutes a true church. Where do you find that in scripture? Um, reformers, for the good of souls, sought a scriptural answer. And instead of pointing to apostolic session, pointed to apostolic teaching. Right? The word of God. Um, why, why is this question necessary to answer today? and necessary to answer in every age, because the church always needs reformation. The church always needs reformation according to what? According to God's word. Um, there, there will always be this process of losing and regaining, right? Because the church is constituted of sinners, depraved sinners. That's good reformed theology, too. That's one of the foundations of the Reformation. Remember Israel. When they are warned not to forget the Lord when they enter the land that's flowing with milk and honey. Well, we need the same reminder. God has done marvelous things. God has, has his son has consummated his work, not consummated, but has completed that part of his work of redemption to save our souls. And yet, you know, when we enter the land with milk and honey, we can forget the Lord. We need this constant reminder. When we live during a peaceful age, the importance of the church and her calling in the world always gets distorted. If you live in a peaceful age, right? I think many evangelicals um, would have, you know, I'm thinking of mainline, mainstream evangelicals, the, the evangelical superstar sort of preachers. Um, Perry Noble used to be one right up the road here. They would have different answers to the questions of the notes of the church or the marks of the church. And, and I would say they barely have one mark, let alone three. The reason we need to think about the marks of the church is we also live in an antinomian age, right? And an antinomian age is one that says, please don't tell me what to do. I just want, I'm just going to believe the gospel more. That's the one command of Scripture. Just believe the gospel more. Whereas Scripture does have a few more commands than that. 
That is one of the commands. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? But we live in an antinomian age, and so that's going to, you know, if, if it's don't tell me what to do, how do you preach rightly the, the whole counsel of the Word of God? Well, you can't, because the people insist that you just preach, believe the gospel more each week. We also live in an individualistic age, to each his own. That's going to affect the way that the word is preached and the, and the, the sacraments are administered and certainly church discipline is undertaken. You know, look, it's, that's good for you. It's not good for me. You can't tell me what to do. I'm going to do my own thing and everybody else can do their own thing. That's the world we live in. And that all can be summarized that we live in an anti-authority age. You... you have no right to tell me what I should believe or what I should think or what I should do or how much salt I should use on my mashed potatoes, whatever it may be. Um, More close to home, I believe many of the recent departures from, I mean, many of, many Many times when you see departures from, uh, from local bodies have to do with misunderstanding these things, the marks of the church. Uh, there's a tragic misunderstanding of what the church and her officers are obligated by God himself in his word to do. Right? There's a, just a, a complete misunderstanding of that. There's a fundament, fundamental misunderstanding of the marks of the church. So where does this come from, the marks of the church? A few historical sources to, to help you think about this, and then we'll look at some scriptures that hit those three areas. The Belgic Confession, which is a Dutch Reformed uh, confession about 1561. It was revised in the 17th century. Um, the Belgic Confession devotes a chapter, Article 29, to the marks of the true church and lists them as follows. It says this, the true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It practices church discipline for correcting faults. So there are those three things. Um, In short, it goes on to say, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head of the church. By these marks, one can be assured of recognizing the true church, and no one ought to be separated from it. Okay, so that's what the Belgic Confession said, focusing on those three things. The Scots Confession, right, which is precious to us Presbyterians. The Scots Confession of 1560, about the same time as the Belgic Confession. The notes, therefore, of the true Kirk, and that's, that's, uh, that's how the Scottish refer to the church. The notes, therefore, of the true Kirk of God, we believe, confess, and avow to be, first, the true preaching of the word of God, into which God has revealed himself to us as the writings of the prophets and apostles do declare. So there's a little bit of expansion, you know, um, defining that the word of God is revealed from God and is by the prophets and apostles. Secondly, the right administration of the sacraments of Christ Jesus, which must be annexed unto the word 
which must be attached to the word and promise of God to seal and confirm the same in our hearts. Last, ecclesiastical discipline uprightly ministered, as God's word describes, whereby vice is repressed and virtue nourished. Whosoever then, wait, wheresoever then these former notes are seen, and of any time continue, be the number of persons never so few, about two or three, there without all doubt is the true Kirk of Christ. Right? Even if it diminishes to two or three, if those marks are present there, then that's the true Kirk of Christ, who according to his promise is in the midst of them, um, God is in the midst of them. Uh, let's see. And it goes on from there. But it, again, it marks out those three marks of the church. Now stick with me here. Pastors get excited about these things, and you should be too. Right? This is, this, is, this is life and death. Right, This is the power of the church in the world. If, if, we, if we get stirred up by the example of the martyrs and our fathers, reformed fathers in the faith, and then are bored by thinking about the marks of the church today, then we're just hypocrites. Okay? This is essential to the church having a purpose and power in this world. Calvin writes in the Marks of the Church, 1559. So the Belgic Confession, 1560, Scott's Confession, 1560, and now Calvin, 1560, all about the same time. Whenever we see the word of God purely preached and heard, and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there it is not to be doubted a church of God exists. Right. So he boils it down to two. Why does he list only two? Uh, because he rightfully, I believe, tied discipline, that third one, to the proper administration of the sacraments. Read his institutes and you'll see that he places a major, um, a major importance on church discipline. So though he doesn't list it right there, it's present. Now where do these things come from the, the scriptures? The reason I read Matthew 28 is I think all three are contained right there in that one Short uh, verse, or verses, short verses. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Who has authority? Jesus has authority. What does he do with that authority? He then delegates that authority, right? Not to the Pope but to his servants. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so, right there, if we stick just to the first preaching, we see that they are to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. They are to go out and teach. They are to go out and preach the word of God. 2 Timothy 4.2 says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. 1 Corinthians 9.16 For if I preach the gospel, this is Paul speaking, If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And so we see these commands in Scripture to go preach the Word of God. 
Do you believe that that is a mark of the church? Do you believe that the right preaching, the pure preaching of the word of God is essential to the witness of the church in today's age? Or, or do we need to spice it up? You know, do we need to add images? Do we need to add screens that, that, that play movies while the preacher is, is uh, lowering his voice to manipulate you emotionally? Or is it the preaching of the word? As sleepy as you may get, is the preaching of the word the power of God? It is. Second, the sacraments. Back to Matthew 28. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, Jesus is commanding this. He's commanding that the sacraments be, uh, be administered in the church. And there we see baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the triune name, right? The proper administration. You don't just baptize into the Father. You don't just baptize into the Holy Spirit. You baptize into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the, tr- the triune God. 1 Corinthians 11, 23, 23 and following, that passage that, we, that you always hear me read before we come to the Lord's table. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Right? In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then where does Paul go from there? Talks about the proper administration of the sacrament. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. There's a way you can take the cup and, and, and the bread in an unworthy manner. Shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. If he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. So Paul goes on to talk about the right administration of that. That's why we read this before every time we come to the table. We say, have you examined yourself? Have you submitted yourself to the leadership of the church? Are you you properly discerning the Lord's body? Right? And then saying, look, if you're not, if you have no faith in Jesus, don't come to this table. We don't believe like the Roman Catholics who believe that separate from faith there's blessing in the sacrament. No, we think there's a curse apart from faith. So that's part of the proper administration of the sacrament. What about discipline? There aren't very many passages we could go to talk about discipline from Scripture, right? There are. I'll only share a few. Matthew 28 again, but the eleven disciples proceeded Galilee to the mountain When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful, and Jesus came up. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Teaching them to observe. So make disciples, right, which requires discipline, and observe all that I commanded you. And so... 
we see all three of these marks of the church right there at the end of Matthew when Jesus is telling the apostles that it's you're going to go out and be the church. These are the things you must do. You must preach. You must give the sacraments. You must discipline. Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of the spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may what? Share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's the goal of discipline. That's the goal of all discipline by the church, yielding the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy. And not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Matthew 18, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, this is said to the apostles, and this is the, the keys that are given to the officers of the church. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. I mean, think of that. The Roman Catholic Church ta- taught that that was the Pope. The Reformers taught that that was the elders and pastors of the church. In every local church, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. It will have been done in heaven. Okay, so discipline. Now, Now think of all of this in this way. I've recently been saying that the church is a household because, well, it is. It's a household, right? We read in 1 Timothy 3.15, But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And so think of those marks, preaching, sacraments, discipline. 
Um, Think of the marks of a house or a household. Instruction, identifying marks like name and correction. What if any of those is lacking in a household? Right, a house without identifying marks, is, is, it's hard to even imagine. No name means no authority. Right? Your children take on your name. Right? They, you have, you've named them. That means something. Like Adam having authority over the animals. When we name our children, it means that we have authority over them. The name of the father is to be placed on the children of the household. If there's no name, there's no father. And if there's no father, there's no authority. And if there's no authority, then there's lawlessness. Right? If there's no instruction in a household, if there's no teaching in a household, then it hardly resembles a household. If there's no correction in a household, there's no love. He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves disciplines him diligently. Right? There's a... You know, as we think about the marks of the church, and as we think about the church today... It's so often that we think of it in this, you know, we we talk about, and and this is not wrong, I'm just saying that we have it in our head that we talk about our church, you know. You you should come to my church because of this and this and that. Well, there's a real sense in which this is not your church. It's God's church. It's God's church. It's Jesus' bride where called men exercise delegated authority for the blessing and benefit of the people. Of course, you know, there's a, there's a very real sense in which we are all, um, this is our church as we are adopted by God into his household. But that in no way means that you can disregard the family rules, his word, or the means by which he rules his household. Um, now, that, that sounds strangely authoritarian if you lose sight of the marks of the church. Um, that you are here to submit yourself to the word of God and you are here to submit yourself to the rules of God's household. Right? It sounds authoritarian if you believe the purpose of the church is to be you know, just one choice among Sunday entertainments. It sounds very strange. Um, it sounds radically authoritarian if you believe the purpose of the, of the church is to um, facilitate potlucks. Right? And that's, I mean, I know a lot of men who just attend church because there's a meal after church. Yeah. I've, I've had that told to me many times. I love this church because they feed us. Not like the word, but cheesecake. Right? It, it, this sounds radically authoritarian if you believe the purpose of the church is supplied you with good vibes. You know, good, warm fuzzies every once in a while. But if you believe that God has called his church to preach the word, to properly administrate his means of grace, the sacraments, and to shepherd God's people into maturity through discipline, then you understand when I say this is not your church, that I mean something very important and, in fact, very comforting. The church is Christ's bride. It's his church. It's God's household. It's his pillar of foundation, pillar and foundation of truth in this world. Right? Scripture teaches us this. And as we think on the abuses of of, uh, an apostate church, 
you know, 500 years ago, the issue was they were selling salvation through indulgences. Selling salvation. And, and the conf- you know, we think through the confrontation that began in earnest with Luther 500 years ago. We understand that the reformers desired to see a true church flourish in this world. That's what they wanted to see. Without a true church in this world, the people and, and the nations are going to languish, right? People will give in to their natural desires and will not hear the message of God's grace in Jesus Christ in the particular way that God ordained it through the mouth of his son in Matthew 28. One of the cries of the Reformation was the church reformed and always reforming. The church reformed and always reforming. The goal of the purity, the goal is the purity of the bride of Christ. And that increases by the righteous use of those three marks of the church. Right? It was a few, a few generations after the original reformers that that ecclesia reformata, semper reformanda, church reformed, always reforming, came along. Um, that is true if we understand that phrase rightly. This does not mean the church reformed, always progressing, always innovating. That's not what that means. Um, the church reformed always innovating, right? Video venues and, and new means to, to reach the world. It means the church reformed always reforming according to the scriptures, right? So the goals of a pure church are still the same today. Uh, we must always give ourselves to the marks of the church. So the preaching of the word today is impure because it's, you know, it's often viewed as, as nothing, or it's often viewed as everything. Um, that there is no pastoral ministry that can happen outside of the pulpit with authority. It's only the pulpit that's authority. Um, the preaching of the word is the proclamation of God's word, not a pep talk. It's the proclamation of God's word, not an opportunity for reformed superstars to wow listeners with their eloquence. Proper administration of the sacraments today is impure because it's viewed as, at times, nothing and at times, everything. The proper administration of the sacraments mean, you know, means um, that there is true spiritual nourishment in the taking of the ele- elements of communion with faith. It's not merely a memorial. It's not nothing, right? And the proper administration of the sacraments teaches that... Um, that they do not save the recipients, right? Some Presbyterians who insist that their infant and very young children come to the table um, make the mistake, become sacramentalists like Roman Catholics, saying that it is the table that saves their children. And what do we say about that, that third mark? It is the least detectable mark of the church today, church discipline. So hated is church discipline that admonition is dying even in the higher courts of the church. Um, here's an example of that. Three or two years ago at General Assembly, uh, one of the a teaching elder got up in the middle of a, of a debate about uh, how we are going to witness to Muslims. And the whole question uh, it was, should we use the, the 
the names Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the name of God. And the report was advocating, one part of the report, the minority report, was advocating that we should not use the name Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because it offends Muslims. Though that is the way that God in his word has revealed himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so one man got up in the midst of this debate and said, look, if we decide to substitute the minority report for the majority report and pass this, I will leave this church. Because that's blasphemy. If you will not call God by his names, but by some other names, I'm gone. And, and I thought to myself, praise God somebody said that, because that's what I was thinking. It was too cowardly to get up and say. Right? He said it. But what troubled me was after that, there was a string of about five or six teaching elders that got up and said, gentlemen, uh, let's watch the inflammatory rhetoric. We need to think the best of other people's motives, and we should not judge one another, though it's a court, and that's what we were there for, is making judgments. Um, and, and so person after person rebukes this man for defending the name of God. And so discipline is like non, you know, discipline is shunned even at general assembly, at the highest courts, let alone at the lower courts. Uh, this past um, Thursday, we had uh, a man, a young man, 24, 25 years old, in Calvary Presbytery, being examined for licensure. And um, he took two, he did a great exam, he preached a great sermon, very eloquent, um, even a handsome guy. And, and just sharp, sharp in all of his answers, quick, quick on his feet to, to um, answer. And then we came to the exceptions that he takes to the Westminster Standards. And he took an exception to the Sabbath and to images of God. So he was essentially denying the fourth and second commandments. He was calling the fourth commandment ceremonial, saying the way we keep the Sabbath today is not by keeping a day for worship, but by believing in Jesus. And then second commandment, he, he at one point said that there was that it wasn't sinful to use images in worship, but it would be unwise, okay, and may lead people to temptation. And, and so, you know, at that point, we have a judgment to make as a court of the church, as presbytery. And he's sent out of the room, and we debate whether or not we'll license this man to preach the word of God in Calvary Presbytery. And... Um, we, we're going back and forth. I rise and tell people, look, he just said, he just let the court remember, he just said that you could worship God with images. Um, it's forbidden by the second commandment. And um, everyone who spoke prefaced all their comments with, boy, he's a really sharp guy. I really want to figure out how we can make him a licentiate in Calvary Presbytery. But he's taken these exceptions, so let's give him some time. 
you know, everybody kept saying, let's give him some time, let's give him some time, let's give him, he's so sharp, he's so eloquent, he's the kind of guy that we want to have in our presbytery. He's just, he presents so well. And I'm sitting there thinking, that's not what we're here to do. We're here to make a judgment based upon what he's testified before us by the word of God. And he's taken two humdingers of exceptions. And we should say no to him. And say, you cannot preach in this until you get these items straight according to the word of God. You're you're striking at very uh, fundamental aspects of the faith. Now, he was denied his licensure. Thank the Lord. But they weren't concerned with the second commandment. It was only the fourth commandment. That kind of made me want to pull my hair out. But but, but it, it was the attitude. It was the attitude that we're not here to protect the purity of the church. But we're here to make sure this man, who has two terrible exceptions to the word of God, feels good about himself and comes back to be a licentiate. That's not what we're there for at that moment. Yes, let's encourage him. Let's go out behind and say, look, praise God for your honesty. Some men would lie just to get into the presbytery. You were honest. Praise God. Keep working on these questions. But after the meeting, in the meeting, we're there to protect the purity of the church. Do you see how the mindset toward discipline in the church is just fading away? That's what we're there to do. Guard the purity of the church. That's what the session is here to do. Guard the purity of the church. And if any of us sins, it's the session that should go to us and say, you're blemishing the name of Christ. Stop. Yes, we, we are concerned for you. We want you to be restored. We want you to come back. But the first, the first purpose of church discipline is, to, is the glory of God. Not the reclaiming of the sinner. It's the glory of God, the purity of the church, and then the reclaiming of the sinner. Okay? So, so this, I'd give you these examples just to say that this third mark of the church is diminishing and is where reform needs to come to the church. Locally, there is basically no exercise of authority, no acceptance of admonition by members. This goes on both sides. Leaders aren't willing to exercise, and members of churches aren't willing to receive admonition, right? Calvin on church discipline says this, but as some from hatred of discipline, uh, right, things just don't change. This is 450 years ago. But as some from hatred of discipline are averse to the very name, for their sake we observe. If no society, nay, no house, with even a moderate family can be kept in a right state without discipline, much more necessary is it in the church, whose state ought to be the best ordered possible. Hence, as the saving doctrine of Christ is the life of the church, right? that's, that's what we're all about. Jesus saves. So discipline is, as it were, its sinews. For to it it is owing that the members of the body adhere together, each in its own place. Wherefore, all who either wish that discipline were abolished, or who impede the restoration of it, whether they do this of design or through thoughtlessness, certainly aim at the complete devastation of the church. For what will result if everyone is allowed to do as he pleases? But this must happen if... 
if to the preaching of the gospel are not added private admonition, correction, and similar methods of maintaining doctrine, and not allowing it to become lethargic. Discipline, therefore, is a kind of curb to restrain and tame those who war against the doctrine of Christ, whereas it is a kind of stimulus by which the indifferent are aroused. Sometimes also it is a kind of fatherly rod by which those who have made some more grievous lapse are chastised in mercy with the meekness of the Spirit of Christ. Since then, we already see some beginnings of a fearful devastation in the church from the total want of care and method in managing the people. Necessity itself cries aloud that there is need of a remedy. Now, the only remedy is this which Christ enjoins, and the pious have always had it in use. So that's Calvin talking about church discipline, right? And it's mind-boggling that he says that of the church of the time in Geneva, if you know what he's doing in Geneva. How much more is that true of our day and age? How much more true? Get out of your head that the exercise of discipline is negative. So 500 years on after the Reformation began in an official way, Reformation is still needed, and as long as sinners make up the church, it will be needed into the future. Conformity to God's word will always be needed. So let's not simply rejoice, you know, let's not simply rejoice in our history, right? Let's not just get, you know, all caught in the past, but realize that our history obligates us to the task of continued reformation. That's what our history obligates us to. Christians don't live in the past, Right? They live in the present and they look toward the future, learning from the past, but they don't live in the past. We don't act like we've arrived and can build monuments and museums. Right? That, whole, that whole reformer's monument in Geneva should be dashed to pieces. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. We have not arrived. Right? We, we, don't, we don't build monuments and museums, though many of our churches have become that. They're just monuments and museums. They're monuments and museums to the Westminster Confession. They're monuments and museums to, um, to the icons of the reformers that are placed on the walls. Uh, monuments and museums that do nothing to engage us in the necessary work of the church today. Okay, the church today is in, as, is in as much need of reformation as the church was in the 16th century. And so may, you know, may God cause uh, you know, those who love the reformers to love his church today, not just the, 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 the museum piece that it's become. And so may, we, may God raise up men who are committed to the painful work of, of being a reformer today, right? Be a reformer today, not just a champion of yesterday's reformers. It's so easy to be a champion of yesterday's reformers. But come into your church and say, okay, we haven't had church discipline in this church in the last 25 years. I think maybe as a session we should start doing it. Whoa. Then life gets really painful really quick. You know, but every, every, every PCA pastor is going to affirm these three marks of the church. 
And yet, when it comes to the practice and promoting this and, and, and fundamentally grounding ourselves in what God tells us to be as a church, we want nothing to do with those three marks. And that shouldn't be. So we need reformation today. right? Let's not get caught up in the past. Let's not just settle in the past, but let's be inspired in, from the past to work today for the reformation of the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are at work in your church by your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you call men to lead that church. And you delegate authority to them. You delegate them wisdom. You give them your Holy Spirit to make decisions and to make judgments. Father, I pray that we would be faithful as a church to make righteous judgments according to your word. Father, I pray that, that the work of reformation today would, would enlarge, that it would take a fire, that, that, um, that you would raise up those who are not concerned about their reputations, that reformed celebrities' mouths would be silenced. And that those who really love your church and who, who don't merely love publishing contracts and money would rise up in the church and call for reformation and be given authority as they call for it. Father, we pray this for the sake of our neighbors who are dying because they are not hearing the word preached. We pray this for our nation that is going after after its own ways, that it's doing just what is it thinks is wise in its own eyes. And so, Father, we pray that, that the church would be reformed. And Father, we often pray for revival. But that's a cheap prayer. Father, we want, to do, we want you to do all the work without us having any skin in the game. Reformation takes men being inspired by your spirit to call for hard change. And so, Father, we pray, we pray yes for revival, but we, do, we pray for it through reformation. We pray through, that it would come through the means that you have placed in your church in all ages for your gospel to go out. The preaching of your word, the peer administration of your sacraments, and church discipline. Lord, we thank you for these things. We thank you for the way that your sacraments have nourished us. We thank you for the way that your pre- the preaching of your word has, has warned us. And we thank you for the way that church discipline has chastened us and has caused us to repent. Lord, I pray that we would all be thankful for those marks of your church and that we would all rest in them, that we would all appreciate them. We would all pray that the marks of your church would uh, would would strengthen, that we would see more churches adhering to these because it is conformity to your word. 